think it was um, the biggest thing I learned. And you could say I learned a, a lot about mass spectrometry. I learned a lot about physics. I, I There were many things I learned, but perhaps the biggest thing that I learned about was that I had the ability to solve problems. And, and, and in actuality, that turned out to be so valuable because as scientists, this is what we do all the time. We're constantly on a daily basis being exposed to problems that you need to come up with, to come up with a solution. I mean, if, if things would have ended then for me, like there was a good chance they could have ended, um, I, would, I would have, my whole life would have probably been largely based on work, which was, um, which again, you, again, you, you really brought up this, this, I, this thought of regrets me in, in that context, which I hadn't anticipated going into today. I had not anticipated yeah. even telling you that story, but, but it was, but we, 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 how many years we actually have is, um, is not a given. Um, so it's, it, that balance is perhaps a little bit it makes it a little bit more important to, to be aware of it. You're hearing part of my conversation with Dr. Gary Shusak, a leading researcher in the field of mass spectrometry and metabolomics, and just a truly humble and generous human being. Today we'll be talking about his background in science and his work. The development of a more accessible form of mass spectrometry, EISA QMRM, and the many applications of metabolomics for researchers and the applications in our lives. We also talk about his experience with his career, work-life balance, his biggest regrets, and even end up talking about his background in powerlifting and his dance-filled evenings over his beautiful coastal view. Before we begin, I just want to advise our listeners on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to consider checking this one out on our YouTube channel for this episode, which will be linked in the show notes, as Dr. Shustak did prepare a few visuals for this episode, and we'll have timestamps for you to jump around. Okay, I'm really excited to share this episode with you guys. I had a lot of fun with it, and I think that the knowledge that Dr. Shustak shares is applicable to so many of us from all walks of life. Hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Helix Show. I am really excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Gary Shuzdak. And Dr. Shuzdak is a professor of chemistry, molecular and computational biology, and he is a director at the Center for Medical metabolomics at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, where he and his team are developing mass spectrometry-based technologies for understanding our metabolism. And he's also served as vice president of the American Society for Mass Spectrometry and a guest faculty at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Um, and before I hand it over to Dr. Shuzdak, um, I also want to mention he's written two books about mass spectrometry um, that are very informative and well-received. And for the people who are listening in on YouTube, uh, I do have a copy of one right here. So Dr. Shustak, um, welcome to the Helix Show. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. And <clears throat> actually, the book that you just showed, um, the it, it's probably worth mentioning that the entire book is available free as a PDF from our website at Scripps. So oh, wow. there's no need to go buy it. You can just get it right off the website. Um, all the all the content is on the website. You can just do a download and it'll be there. Wow, that's amazing. So I usually get started with a bit of background about the guests. So I guess, can we get start from quote unquote beginning, um, maybe from childhood to now, like as a prolific researcher? Sure, sure. And I've tried to anticipate some of the questions that Chris is going to be asking today. So I, um, I did put together just a few slides that might help bring up clarify points that I'm making today, but um, I'll, I'll throw that up if I think it's necessary okay. at some point. So the, I'm originally from Rhode Island, Kentucky, Rhode Island on the East Coast, and I, I've um, 
went to Toman High School and, and focused mostly of my interest on science and mathematics. And then um, ultimately went on to Rhode Island College where I majored both in chemistry and math. And then Dartmouth College, I, I went there for graduate school in Hanover, New Hampshire. And I got my PhD in physical chemistry. And it's, it's there where I built a mass spectrometer and got me interested in the area of mass spectrometry. Um, so the part of my physical chemistry uh, thesis was involved using mass spectrometry to study small molecules. And that basically got me interested in the area and that's how things have um, essentially evolved since then, since my graduate career, because right after my graduate career, I started at the Scripps Research Institute, where I've now been for 31 years. And I've um, been doing mass spectrometry and applying it largely to metabolism and uh, what we call metabolomics, which is the, the technologies that revolve around studying metabolism. And as Chris said, I'm the director and professor at the Center for Metabolomics. So when you like graduated high school, you had really no idea that you would be this into mass spec, but like you kind of knew that you want to pursue something in science. Exactly. I always, <clears throat> I always had a, a sense that I, I was going to be involved in science. I had no idea um, that mass spectrometry <clears throat> would play such a big role. So, I mean, it, I guess with everybody, you kind of know the you get a sense of the types of things that you enjoy doing. And I've always enjoyed numbers. Um, yeah. I mean, it, the numbers have been, for some reason, and, and I've realized this as time goes on more and more, that it, numbers have always played a, a big role in my life, just because yeah. I just find them so much fun. In fact, it, one thing I wish I had gotten involved in earlier, I, I hadn't, I, I just, I started doing this about 15 years ago, which was, um, uh, doing, um, looking more at investments in the stock market. And actually, it, surprisingly to myself, it actually fits very well with my interest in numbers. So that, um, that, that actually was, it's actually been a fairly productive part of, um, and, and also entertaining. It's um, learning yeah. about a whole different aspect. It has nothing or relatively little to do with science, but it's, um, but still, just making use of some of the techniques that I developed when I was in high school, in my early stages as an um, undergraduate. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Uh, and this is a quick caveat, but there's actually this book I've been reading called um, Alice's Adventures in Numberland um, by Alex Feos, I think. And like, it also got me interested in like, just how cool numbers are. I think a lot of people in science or especially in biology, they don't they don't really like math, which is why they might like biology, but um, that's that's really fascinating. Um, but on to the next question. I think a lot of our student listeners, they are probably first introduced to math spectrometry in maybe junior high or high school. Uh, for me, like I kind of saw it mentioned in like papers and I was reading like before ninth grade, I was super confused because they had like LCMS or like GCMS, I had no idea what that meant. And then in high school, in chemistry class, I think you first re like learn just a bit about like um, the different components of a mass spectrometer. And then like from my interest in physics, like learning a bit about like cyclotron frequency and something like like the circular path that the ions take. But sure. for people who aren't familiar with mass spec, maybe to someone who like you're just explaining your research to someone, uh, how do you usually explain it and why is it so important? Sure, so from a mass spec perspective, I mean, you, you kind of touched on some of the really fascinating aspects of mass spectrometry. It's, it's basically weighing molecules, but it's not weighing the molecules just by themselves. We're weighing them by putting a charge on them. So typically we'll put a proton on them and that proton, creates a charged molecule, and we're actually weighing mass to charge ratio. <clears throat> so as a, so that may not sound um, particularly exciting, but in reality, it's, 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 it is really quite exciting, because, largely because, well, just as a background to this, there's been numerous um, Nobel Prizes that have been won by scientists who have developed this, te this technology. Um, 
J.J. Thompson in, in the early 1900s who first developed mass spectrometry. And then there, again, there's been a lot of incremental developments. One of my favorite ones was the, you mentioned GCMS, and inside every GCMS is a quadrupole mass spectrometer and our mass analyzer. And it was um, uh, Wolfgang Paul who won the Nobel Prize back in 1989 for that development. And he, he actually made the development in 19, it was around 1950s, late 1950s, 1960. But it, you know, when you, you hear about people who made these major technology developments, you oftentimes they're very incremental. So you, 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 you build on it, you build on it, you build on it, and you get to the point where you've made a discovery that, that ultimately um, is really appreciated and implemented far and wide. The thing that I think that's interesting about what Wolfgang Paul did was that it really came out of the blue. And you don't see that very often in science. I mean, I think another really relevant example is what uh, Carrie Mullis did with PCR. Yeah, just driving down the highway, I think. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of interesting aspects to that story as well. But it was just a, a really out of the blue um, idea that has, which I, which PCR, I don't know if that would exist right now had that had he not developed it. And I don't know if we would have quadrupole mass spectrometers right now, even even though it's it would have been 70 years later had he not had this idea. So it's and you can't really say that a lot about different um, different things that come along in science because the, the jumps are relatively small. Oh, so so the, um, <clears throat> I guess from a, a scientific purely scientific perspective, the um, it's, I, I find that fascinating, but perhaps for your audience, what they will find more fascinating is the application. And the application is highly relevant to all of us. So um, some of the, for, for drug development, every pharmaceutical company has um, on the order of hundreds of, of mass spectrometers that are, that are helping them develop drugs. Um, it's used in forensics. It's also used, it's, uh, the Olympics is coming up and all, most of the athletes are going to be tested with the mass spectrometer for, for drugs. And from, and there's lots of different places that you can apply this technology. For, for me and my interest in metabolism and the relevance for, from, from an applied perspective, I guess you can say that in the clinic, um, metabolic, met, metabolites are analyzed in people all the time. In fact, the best example is in children. Everybody who has, typically now, everybody who has a baby, that baby is tested for um, inborn errors of metabolism with a mass spectrometer. So it's, um, so the, it's, they, they, there's hundreds of thousands of these instruments out there and they're being applied all the time to very, relevant problems and uh, um, it, on a routine basis and also from a research perspective. And for me, it, the, the, the application to metabolism um, dovetails very nicely into the technologies that we develop because I'm more, I'm very much interested in developing technologies and that's where metabolomics come in, comes in and mass spectrometry application to studying metabolism is perhaps one of the definitely one of the more exciting areas in, in science right now and there's so many different types of mass uh, spectrometry and um, maybe we can talk about this more on when we talk more about like the applications to metabolomics but um, from what I understand there is also a new type that you and your team have been working on um, to help yes with the yeah, yeah, no, that this is one that actually it's just um, it, it'll it's really just come out recently. We had we did a preprint on it, so it is available. It hasn't it it's I think it'll just it'll be accepted very shortly and um in a journal that I'm hoping to hear it in, in the next day or so. <clears throat> but the um, but it is available as a preprint on Chem Archives, which is a, it's a Chem Archives is a 
a site that allows you to put the uh, paper, yeah. uh, make it available prior to it becoming available. And I like to call it um, QMRM, and, or it basically it's um, single quadrupole multiple reaction monitoring. So that sounds, with mass spectrometry, there's tons of acronyms and you, you, you can get buried yeah. in acronyms. Um, and this is the one, uh, nothing there is new. Which I've just combined previously used acronyms. Um, and the reason why this is interesting, at least for me, is that the technology, is, and, and actually for you, it should be actually quite interesting for you as well, because typically when you do quantitative mass spectrometry, you need these things called triple quads, which are these fairly complex pieces of, of equipment that are usually very expensive. And only usually places that have a fair amount of resources are can have these sorts of instruments. You need on the order of half a million dollars um, to, to have these sorts of instruments. The single quad is a much simpler instrument and without going into the details, any great detail about what we've done, it, what we've basically been able to do with the single quad and this multiple reaction monitoring is enable a much simpler mass spectrometry technology, enable it to do quantitative analysis um, in much the same way that the much more uh, complex instrumentation is doing with the triple quad. So why is that interesting for you? Um, and the, the answer and why is it interesting for students is that it'll allow you to have access to quantitative mass spectrometry technology as a student where you can get real world experience with that sort of um, instrumentation with um, at, a, at an undergraduate institute because many undergraduate institutes have this sort of technology available to them so it's so this is something that you can immediately apply on existing instrumentation uh, so basically it's it'll open up roughly 100,000 instruments that are currently out there to students to learn about um, this technology without the potential for them damaging something much more expensive. Yeah. I, I see it as a, a really neat um, educational resource tool. And it's, I have to say, it's one of the things that I've been um, very excited about in, in terms of the recent things that we've been doing, because it's, again, it's, it's, and also the community has been generally interested in it as well. The, the paper has been, the, the preprint has been very well received. I think it's in the 95th percentile of all research that's ever been put out there in terms of the, um, the people who have viewed it and, and, um, and downloaded it. So. Yeah, and that's really exciting. Um, are there any drawbacks to the technology um, compared to the status quo, or is it pretty much the same? You get the same results, even just for a lower price. Yeah, so you get the, the same sensitivity, um, the same um, dynamic range. So the sensitivity is going to be these as we directly compare them to each other, the triple quad and the single quad, depending on the molecule, you'll get very good sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, you'll, the dynamic range is on the order of 10 to the 10 to the fifth, so five orders of magnitude, and which, it, which again tracks very well with what the triple quad offers. Um, the the selectivity um, capabilities of being able to um, to uh, uh, to reduce matrix effects, which is a, where you have lots of molecules coming at, at the system at one time. I think there's a slight advantage with the triple quad, but we've demonstrated in the paper that actually it's it's very comparable. So so there are some caveats to it, but it's um, but overall those caveats are relatively small. Yeah, and that's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Good question, though. Thank you. Yeah. But I think uh, we can move on to like a bit more about the metabolomics side of your research. Um, I think a lot of students find any word that ends with omic kind of confusing. Um, like there's genomics and transcriptomics. And um, can you kind of explain these different like categorizations and why you're interested in metabolomics? Sure. Actually, maybe this is a good time for those of you who are looking at it, YouTube. I'll just share the screen because I did prepare. Um, so let's see. 
just briefly, but what I usually do is use technology to, to apply it to biological problems. In this case, it was sleep. And then um, I try to learn from those biological problems to help develop the technologies. And that's the, and there's been a whole variety of things that we've, we've been doing and, uh, with this. And this, this comes to your question about, um, about genomics and, and proteomics and, and transcriptomics. So the, the, this first message that I typically give in my presentations are related to exactly the question you just asked. So when you, you hear, you mentioned the omics term. Yeah. So the omics term, actually, the, what omics actually means, it, it, it actually means, very, means that you're looking at something from a very comprehensive perspective. So you're, in, in the case of proteins, when we do proteomics, we're trying to look at all the proteins at once, because omics basically means comprehensiveness or completeness. And so when we're, when we're doing these omic experiments, we're not just focusing in on typically on one protein. What we're trying to do is get a whole picture of what's taking place. So, so from a, and this is what I'm showing, this picture I'm showing you right now is what we'd call the central dogma of biology, where you have, you, you start off with the DNA, go to RNA, then you go to proteins and metabolites are the, the, always considered the most downstream molecules in this whole process. Yeah. And I and think that a lot of, oh, sorry, I think a lot of classrooms kind of stop right at the proteins um, and they don't really talk about metabolites at all. And that's, and this is what fascinates me about this whole area of, of, of the, um, the whole omic stream is that if you look at this, um, you, you find that, and this is, I'm not saying anything that's new right now, this is actually very well um, known, is that metabolites act on genes and they cause them to, um, they can cause them to do all sorts of different things in terms of um, signal transduction or epigenetic regulation. Um, RNA, it, they also act as riboswitches on RNA. And they also have many different impacts on protein. They can cause them to change their conformation and have allosteric effects. They act as substrates and they also um, create post-translational modifications on protein. So what I'm showing here is, is, is the reality that metabolites are interacting with these different um, aspects of the, um, of the other omics quite intimately. So now you now you might ask what what is what does metabolomics have to do with this? What, why is metabolomics potentially an important science, and why are so many people becoming interested in it? Well, this this whole thing right here is like I said, it's nothing new. However, what is new is that we can use metabolomics to identify the metabolites that are ultimately acting on these. So, so the metabolomics is turning into a, a tool that allows us to identify the metabolites that are actually interacting with the other levels of the omics. And so, I'll, so I, I always like to, um, oops, oh, I, I guess I, maybe I took that one out, oops. Anyway, so the, the primary point with this is that um, these, uh, Basically, where, where people have typically used metabolomics to identify biomarkers, like I was saying with the, 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 the um, early inborn errors in metabolism for the children, those are basically biomarkers of disease. Um, but I, I think the, the real value in metabolomics is not for biomarker discovery, but in identifying metabolites that can alter phenotype. And maybe, with an example of this, maybe be like, I know there's a lot of research right now in like the gut microbiota. Um, and would that be an example of how metabolites um, from maybe what we digest and just everything that's processed um, might affect our actual like DNA. Absolutely. I mean, we have a paper coming out right now where we've um, described exactly what you're just what you're talking yes. about. We 
we were looking at with Dennis Wolin and Rafa Montenegro. Um, Dennis is at Genentech, and Rafa now is, was a former postdoc, but he's now at, um, he's up in Canada. He's like, just started as an assistant professor. And he, I believe it's the University of um, Toronto. Oh, yeah. And he, we just had a paper accepted in uh, science signaling on that very topic where Rafa identified a metabolite associated with the gut microbiota that was actually inhibiting um, uh, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. So, um, so yeah, so, so it wasn't just that he originally identified that you could consider it a biomarker at that point, but the follow-up biochemical um, analyses that he performed on it and Dennis performed, and, and Enrique Sayas, also a collaborator here at Scripps, um, helped us perform was, helped us not to just say, okay, this molecule is associated with disease. We've actually shown that the molecule can ameliorate the disease. And, and in a mouse model, so it's not, um, we haven't done this in mice. And I, I do, I actually, in the next couple of slides, fortunately, I, I um, I can show you some of my favorite examples of, and ones that you can relate to. So, I mean, you, maybe you take fish oil tablets as a, as a supplement, which it's probably one of the most common supplements that people take. And what most people don't realize is that this, this um, endogenous molecule in the fish oil, DHA, is it, I mean, you, th you take it because you're, you're supposed to, you, you, you've been told all your life that it's an important molecule. But if you don't take it, it can really, and you don't get it in your diet, it can actually have a very big impact on you in a variety of different ways. And perhaps one of the most important ways is that your brain, it's the most ubiquitous lipid in your brain. So it's, um, so it's, so your brain from a lipid composition perspective, it, perspective is made up of 20% of this particular lipid, which is a huge amount. So you can imagine if you're, if you're deprived of this, um, if, if your diet just doesn't allow you to get enough of this, it can have a, um, uh, some serious consequences with your cognitive abilities. Yeah. And my, and my other favorite one, and I, this is, um, this is one that I've been learning a great deal about over, over the past couple of years. This is, one that you're probably not aware of, but every hospital has this particular molecule um, very well stocked in its in its um, in its uh, well, it's 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 a very ubiquitous actual. It's an actual. It's a drug that that converts in your system to ultimately provide you with glutathione. So glutathione is an antioxidant. It's, very ubiquitous throughout humans. It's, it's one of the most abundant molecules in our cells. And glutathione is a, a very powerful antioxidant. So the so what what the NAC, we call it, and acetylcysteine does is it ultimately, when you take it, it it's a prodrug that converts to glutathione. And the reason why it's so ubiquitous is because it, um, the, the, why it's so ubiquitous in hospitals is that for, for people who have overdosed on things like Tylenol, which is just, which can destroy your liver, this is the this is the first um, thing that people take. But it's also, I mean, any you can imagine, there's lots of events that take place where you have a high level of oxidative stress, and uh, including exercise, and this can this can actually alleviate that quite significantly. This is a this is a so it's um it's not it's not it's it's very it's probably one of the most common drugs out there right now. It's been around for over 60 years, or actually since the 1940s. So that would be over 80 years. Wow. Anybody? Do you have any other? Ah, and my favorite. <clears throat> so sorry. I hope I, I'll just I, I this will be the last one. <laughs> this is my this is my favorite because I take statins because I'm a I my um cholesterol levels are high. So in order to, um, one of the problems with statins, though, it inhibits the endogenous metabolite coenzyme Q10 or CoQ10. And 
that metabolite actually is very much involved in muscular function. So what I do to offset that is I, um, and this is this was prescribed by my physician, but you, you don't even need to be prescribed it. You can get it right off the shelf um, for at a relatively cheap cost. So I supplement with CoQ10 to alleviate the side effects of statins. So it's so, like the, the central dogma, it's not like really a linear process. Like it's more of this circular thing where metabolites are always affecting, like going back to the gene expression itself. And yeah, I think, I think that is like a really more fascinating topic that's opened up, especially like with more epigenetic discoveries. It's like, it's not so linear or black and white. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, as you can imagine, as anything with biology in life, there, it's much more complicated than we ever anticipated it would be. And yeah. sort of, and it, again, it, what we've done with the metabolomics is that we're, uh, again, none of this is, is new information. What's new here is that we can use the, this new metabolomic technology to identify what molecules are actually playing roles in these. Because uh, with this picture I'm showing here, you get the wrong impression that we know everything about what's going on in terms of protein activity and RNA metabolism and gene expression. The reality is we don't. We're still learning a great deal, and that's where metabolomics comes into play. And uh, since you mentioned like um, rodent studies, I know a lot of these, obviously, they can't really be done in humans. Um, I think a lot of people find it really hard to trust these papers that come out, make, especially in the field of like nutrition or sports, because part of this is like the media maybe making some outrageous headlines. Um, but I think it's kind of hard to do experiments like in a lab coat and have people see this will be replicated in real life or like in our more macroscopic interactions. So like when you get results from your studies and your devices that visualize like these really microscopic details, how applicable do you think that is to kind of more real world interactions? Well, yeah, so there was a paper recently <clears throat> And then you're you're absolutely right. A lot of the things it's, it's hard to say that how well they're going to transfer from animals to humans. So you're you're, you're spot on. You have to be very careful about um, making these general conclusions from from the observations that you make in, in in these animals that are often very different from us as humans. However, there is more of a push in, in the the National Institutes of Health and is, is certainly um, facilitating this to apply these technologies in more relevant sort of ways. And one, again, this is related to, some, somewhat related to the um, N-acetylcysteine that I mentioned earlier. There have been some recent metabolomic studies being done on humans, specifically on athletes. So this is, again, very relevant to the Olympics coming along. Yeah. So they were actually looking at how elite bicyclists or cyclists um, compare to uh, how they interact, how they um, deal with the stress that occurs during this high level of activity versus uh, normal individuals. And the reason why I'm showing this picture again is it turns out that athletes um, who have developed themselves sufficiently enough at that level um, have an, a much greater ability, and they, they've discovered this through the metabolomic technologies and analyzing their blood, that they have a much greater ability to deal with oxidative stress. So uh, again, I, I'm, I'm actually being a little bit silly right now, but you could actually say that you don't, you could, you could be like a, a, a high level athlete and take an acetylcysteine, <laughs> but not, not real. Actually, I, I, um, I, I I, I shouldn't even say that. I think you're not going to be okay from taking this, but it but it does it, it can be helpful in dealing with um, with that sort of stress. And I I'm, I'm not trying to promote this at all. I, I have no <laughs> financial interest in it. I just I find these I find these different molecules fascinating. The, the ubiquitousness of the the DHA the. the um, the CoQ10 in terms of statins, and of course the NAC is, I find them all very, um, very interesting um, things that can be used. Um, and 
again, I'm, I'm constantly learning, so it's a fun process. Yeah. As a scientist, do you think like your outlook on your life and your interactions, especially in COVID or quarantine, has changed? Um, so I, I think what you're asking is that has science I have, has science impacted the way I think? Is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a much better way of saying. So I think uh, let's see. We trying to gather my thoughts on this because it's an important question. I think science and I, there definitely has had an impact on me in terms of how I think about things. I the one thing I really do appreciate probably more than than most people who are not in science is is logic. I I. When, when, when something is, when somebody does things or they, they make decisions that are, at least that I perceive as not being logical, it's some, and I, I really, ha I think have an extra layer of appreciation for when you do things that are, that fall into a, um, a logical sort of, of, of process. And, and I think being involved in, in numbers and mathematics and also in the sciences, it has ultimately allowed me to, yeah, um, appreciate that even more. And it's it's probably why I, I the, the people who I tend to interact with have a, a high degree of, of, of logic. So, so I think it, so I, I, I could probably expand upon this a little bit more, which I think is probably worthwhile to do. I think the other thing that I learned when I was, when I started, um, started in graduate school in, in particular was that, God, I think it was um, the biggest thing I learned. And you could say I learned a, a lot about mass spectrometry. I learned a lot about physics. I, I, there were many things I learned, but perhaps the biggest thing that I learned about was that I had the ability to solve problems. And, and and in actuality, that turned out to be so valuable because as scientists, this is what we do all the time. We're constantly on a daily basis being exposed to problems that you need to come up with, come up with a solution. On. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I've, I've had conversations with many other people. And in fact, my, again, I mentioned Mary earlier, my partner. I mean, we've discussed this, and I think we both had the same experience in graduate school, where you're, it's not like you're reading a textbook and trying to, and then given it, you have a test that you're, you're um, regurgitating things that you've learned. This is, a, you're actually looking at things that people have not understood previously in your research, and you're trying to decipher what's taking place there. So I, it, that, that was that, and I think it was like two or three years into graduate school, I started realizing that essentially I was learning to think for myself, and um, and that was good. And I think the other the other part, again, since I mentioned logic earlier, you when you think of scientists, you think of them as being hyper logical, and yeah. this is and they're they're the closest that you can get to robots, and this yeah. <laughs> but. The best scientists are the ones who, at least, again, this is just Gary talking, but it, at least to me, the best scientists, like generally the most successful scientists, are the ones who are also very creative. And so, so coming up with these solutions is is not not a trivial task, and it, you can't use pure logic to come up with solutions to problems. You have to your mind has to go into different places. And um, I mean, personally for me, I, later in the day, I usually, when I have things on a daily basis, often I'm trying to figure things out, but usually I'm totally useless in the latter parts of the day. But when I wake up in the morning, it's oftentimes the solution will be right there in front of me. It's like I, like I, I and I've, I've come to anticipate this now. It's almost a, a natural part of me problems solving. My, and my problem solving is about, I just, uh, yeah, just wow. wait for wait for the answer to come instead of just trying to bang my head against the wall until it, until it comes. It usually happens quite naturally. It's really, it's, 
it, it really is quite enjoyable. Wow. And I guess that like carries right into my next question, which is kind of like the favorite and your least favorite part of the job. And I'm sure there must be multiple, but can you kind of pick out maybe something that you love about your job and some things that you would rather live without? Um, yeah, so I think that the, the favorite part of my the job is pretty much exactly what I just mentioned, yeah. that the, when you get a solution, and actually it's almost beyond the solution um, than you were anticipating, that you're, you're the, the new solution that you came up with. And I'll go back to that QMRM thing that I mentioned earlier. So <clears throat> the original concept behind it came up, came, came for uh, the original part of the concept was, was developed by a, a postdoc in my lab named Chavi Domingo. So he made an observation that, that um, again, I, I want to be careful about going into too much of the technology. Yeah. It's, it's a, it, it would just get confusing. But he came up with, an, he made an observation that turned out to be really interesting from a, a mass spectrometry perspective, that basically the single quadrupole instruments that I mentioned earlier, and you can make them so they could do things that were, um, generate fragment ions that were the same as what you generate with a triple quad instrument, that it, again, the technology I mentioned earlier. So that in itself was really interesting. And however, the, 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 the improvement we made to, in that in terms of using it for quantitative analysis was, is I think perhaps one of the more significant aspects of the technology. And again, that just kind of came out of, out of the blue and it was, um, so the short answer to your question is, having these really neat ideas that ultimately facilitate um, uh, other people getting excited or actually facilitating their research. In this case, I'm hoping it'll facilitate the people like yourself getting involved in science and being able to use mass spectrometry technology to do things that you weren't able to do previously. And the least favorite? <laughs> uh, the least favorite, is actually, I mean, whenever you run, I mean, the size of my group is is fluctuated over time. So it's been, at least in my, it, to me, it's been relative, a very large size has been 20 individuals that were working in the lab. In other cases, it's been much smaller. So it fluctuates from time to time, um, depending on the resources that I have. And when you, and, and this is true, not just of science and labs or any place, I think when you have that many individuals in a, in a location, it's, it's, it's quite common that you have interpersonal issues that you have to, so, so those, those would be the, um, the probably the least favorite that you're, you're trying to solve um, interpersonal issues, which are perhaps even more complicated than science. <laughs> But I, but I, but I have come up with a solution to this. Um, actually, so I'll ask you, what would, you, what do you think is a good solution to this? And then I'll tell you my uh, answer. <laughs> it's not, and it's not, and it's probably a good thing to be telling people right now because you're a lot of you are going to be in this situation, and yeah. it's um, and it's a, uh, it's an important, and it's one that you're, where you'll have multiple people working for you. I mean. Chris, in the future, I can imagine you'll be doing something where you'll have probably five to ten people who are reporting to you. And you may have to deal with this in, on a regular basis. I'm not sure. Maybe uh, getting a professional. I know there's like industrial organizational like psychologists. Um, there's like lab rules um, setting like very like clear boundaries. But yeah. No, I, I, so actually, it's you're you're you clearly are much more of a natural at this than I am. <laughs> it took me much longer to figure what you what you just said out. And basically, what I do now is, if I find I'm being challenged with one of these things, is I'll go to our human resources department, and and that's exactly what you said. These individuals are have dealt with these problems for 
for um, for years, and they know exactly what needs to be done, and they know what exactly needs to be done. That's the best for the lab, and also the best for the institute. So, um, so it's it's a very common issue that we that many of us have to address. And I I I say exactly what you just mentioned. Go to the people who know how to deal with these and um, train their entire life to do it. So great answer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I think this also like this concept of like scientists are also human beings. Like we're not like and people aren't just like these robots. And um, when you touch about creativity too, I feel like some of my favorite scientists um, are like Feynman or like Einstein, like very creative, like uh, known to be very yeah, creative fine. individuals. Um, and I think where does like really in your life do you think like the lab coat ends and like your personal life begins is it like are there boundaries like work versus like personal life or is it more kind of a blend uh so in the past uh, i i definitely i it's safe to say i definitely had issues with um spending too much time doing focusing on work so that has that has certainly been something that i've um at least in the past has been challenging um however now i think it, i just have lots of different outlets for especially now that i'm in the latter part of my career it's it's become easier to um both do both science and i and i'm actually involved in many different things actually i can even that was the last part of the what I had put together. And that's oh, oh, actually, yeah, this is kind of this was this is an enjoyable question. So you're so now I find I'm doing all sorts of different things. So oh, wow. I, I so I'm I, you can see my bikes in the background here. In this particular case, I'm I'm building a ladder, um, which I mean, who thought that you could build ladders in this? <laughs> you look, watch a YouTube video and you find out that building a ladder is incredibly easy. So <laughs> it, it really it only took a day to actually put this together. And this is everything I'm showing you that I've done this this in the last six months or so. Oh, yeah. This is a bamboo fence that I built for oh, wow. our yard. This is a little table I, I just built. And this is a fountain that I just built for, um, for, the, for the deck. And um, this is a, a patio I just made out of river ties. And, and actually, this is, I just, a couple of weeks ago, I made this desk for myself because I created a clone um, workstation at home. Oh. And this, I just took this morning, a picture of this this morning. This is a table I made for Mary. It's beautiful. Yeah, so, so I, yeah, I'm involved in... I, I don't know. It, it it just depends on your personal interest. But I I swim, I, I bike, I I um, do a wide variety of things, and I just I, I find my balance is actually pretty good at this point. So I, if you're but you're but you're actually think you're talking. I understand that we're the people I'm talking to right now are not 59 years old. <laughs> they're they're yeah. 16 to 20 years old, as you mentioned to me. Yeah. This, this and um, that, yeah, I, I, I think if you, if actually this goes back to the um, a question you asked about uh, about oh, and then maybe you ha you haven't even asked this yet, uh, but you're you're you mentioned that you might ask this question about regrets. Yeah. And do I have any regrets about? <clears throat> And I, and to be quite honest, I, I, I've been thinking about this, and I, and I, regrets would typically imply that you, you're in the place, you're not in the place that you want to be right now, because if you change things in the past, you'd ultimately be in a different place in the future. So I, so I'm, I'm very happy where I am right now. So I, with respect to regrets, I was really quite challenged by coming up with something that. I, that because I, I could say that I, I wish I'd gone to better schools because I think it would have been um, it would have impacted me in a different way and challenged me more but in reality it's ultimately got me to where I am so I, I'm, I, I'm glad for, for that but I 
but now that now that I think about it again in the context of what we've been discussing, I would say that my regret is that I I didn't keep balance, keep a better balance um, throughout the first say 20, 20 years when I when I started professionally because it was it was perhaps a little bit too work oriented and I think I missed out on a lot of things that would have been a lot more fun. Yeah. And I think that's a really a hard like thing for high schoolers or even I know um, this is actually a podcast episode I'm planning to do because I just think this is an interesting subject like about the rise of quote unquote hustle culture or just this um, like 24-7 work, 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 study, study, study culture that I think there is like there is like this huge both sides to the argument, which I really see. Um, and I think like, although our audience is younger people, I think from people like you who have this experience, um, I think it's also really reassuring to know that like um, when you talk about regrets, um, even though there are mistakes that obviously may have been made, like in the end, like it got you where you are now. Uh, I think that's something that's really hard to accept or hard to like envision for a lot of people. So I think that's amazing. Well, it's an interesting part of what you're just saying, and that is that, I mean, I've been, and, I, and actually this is probably, this is worth mentioning. So I brought up statins, I brought up um, the, and a couple of years ago, this was, I guess it was about four or five years ago, I was at a conference and I was getting ready to give a presentation. Yeah. And I was just, I was just working on my computer in bed and my heart rate started slowing down. <clears throat> so it, it initially, my heart rate was, it was in the 40s, which was pretty typical for me. Um, it is something that I, um, given the amount of activity I do, it's, I have a relatively low heart rate. But then it started going down. It was in the, in the into what, high 30s. Oh, wow. And over the course of about three hours, because I was monitoring this, my presentation wasn't until about one o'clock in the afternoon, but I, so I was monitoring it as I was working. So it started, it was in the high 30s, then it went into the mid 30s, and then it went down to the low 30s. And then as I was walking to the, um, to, to give my presentation, to tell them that I wasn't going to give it, like clearly something was up. Yeah. I had monitored it and it was at 27. Um, so what- Like beyond hmm. hospitalization. Well, so I was really having trouble walking. And yeah. there's a reason why I'm telling you this because yeah. the reason is is that ultimately I, I was very lucky. I mean, they, we were, um, they, I, they, they ended up putting stents in my heart and I actually, and, and I, and I function absolutely perfectly now. I don't really have any problems whatsoever, but I mean, I, you know, we were talking about where I am right now and I'm very happy for many of us, you, you're not going to have the opportunity to continue on definitely because something may happen. So yeah. basically I would not, those first 20 years where I was just consumed with um, uh, uh, make doing things that I, I perceived as being important and improving my career situation. I mean, if if things would have ended then for me, like there was a good chance they could have ended, um, I would I would have my whole life would have probably been largely based on work, which was um, which again you again you you really brought up this this i this thought of regrets me in in that context which i hadn't anticipated going into today i had not anticipated yeah. even telling you that story but but it was but we wait how many years we actually have is um is not a given um so it's it that balance is perhaps a little bit it makes it a little bit more important to, to be aware of it yeah. <clears throat> And um, <laughs> that seems like such a, a good note to end on, but I actually really did want to ask this question about your book. Um, and I also have some more bonus questions at the end, um, if you do have the time. But I did want to ask about your book. So like, um, you wrote two books, and obviously, like, writing these takes so much work. So I was really wondering, like, how do people like you, like, um, who have so much, like, background in research, like, 
and now you need to communicate this like uh how do you really approach like focusing specifically on mass spec and um did you have a certain audience you want to target i also noticed that um you had like some review questions at the end of the sections and like um you also really seem to love like the history um like you touched on before like the history of these discoveries so did you have a specific motive like when you're writing this yeah so this <clears throat> yeah for anybody who's out there looking to write books about something i so i can say multiple things about it because i've gone through the, the the whole process with with academic press which was the original publisher and i've done self-publishing it's just been i've just had a lot of different experiences with it and the first thing I would say is, if you're doing this to try to make um, money, it's um, it, it's not a it's you're not going to make a lot of money doing this. <laughs> it's not, so that should definitely should not be your motivation. Um, but what I've I the positives of it has been it, it really allowed me to learn a lot more about the topic than I originally knew. Um, the motivate another motivation was at that time there wasn't uh, much out there in terms of using mass spectrometry and biotechnology so it actually um, there was a large audience who was interested in this and as a result there was a lot of people who, um, who read the, the the books that i put together so uh, um so that would be another lesson from this is don't put together a book in an area that is already saturated with books only put the effort in if you know a lot of people are going to are going to um, look at it and um, and I, I have to say overall it was a very it was a time-consuming but ultimately worthwhile process in it and I think I did it relatively young when I was I think I started it when I was in my late 20s or so and I, it was a very, it turned out to be a great process simply because it helped establish me in the field of mass spectrometry um, at a very early stage. I think that's another valuable aspect of doing this, this sort of effort is that um, your name becomes associated with knowing about the field very well at a very early age. So, so those, are the, those are the lessons for me. You're not gonna make money, you're gonna <laughs> learn a lot, and it helps establish you in your career. I see. I just also want to say I was also very lucky that I had a, a an assistant at that time at Scripps, who her name was Jennifer Whiteston, and she was she was really interested in writing. She was a, an SDSU student at the time in creative writing, and she was it was really nice to have her go through what I was putting together because she made it much, made the books much more interesting. When I was uh, like preparing for this podcast, I actually saw a few sources that talked about uh, your background in powerlifting. Um, is that something that <laughs> um, was was this like as an adult or like um, in like what what portion of your life was this? I guess. Uh, so this was from the age of thirteen to oh. I think I, twenty-seven, and. And it's, it may sound like a very unusual area to, for, for, for me to be in, but it, it turns out that, it, it, again, it has to do with numbers. Yeah. I mean, powerlifting is all about numbers. And so whether it's um, deadlifting or bench pressing or squatting, it was, uh, it was all about how could I improve those numbers and, and what could I do physically to my, um, in terms of nutritionally or the, the exercise regime that I was using. So it was, again, it was logic. It had to do with science and it had to do with numbers. So it was a really a perfect fit for, for, for me. So yeah, I, and I, I love thinking about those days. It was just, it was my last competition was at the, um, the natural nationals, the drug, drug-free nationals. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I finished middle of the pack, but it was still, uh, it was a nice way to end. 
That's amazing. I, I I really appreciate that because I feel like, again, a lot of students feel like um, they can't really incorporate like things like sport into academics, and I think that is not true. So yeah. Um, now on to like. I wish I knew now what I. I wish I knew then what I knew now because I I think I could have performed much in a much better way had I known about different things like um, just different supplements that I that I could take could have taken back then that would have really helped my performance and just yeah. from a dietary perspective it's just um yeah I wish you just wish that um, the uh, older Gary could have talked to the younger Gary <laughs> I could have told them so much. Yeah. Whether whether I would have listened or not is another thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, these are my actual like standard questions. So, um, if you could have one snack food or food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, cake. Um, chocolate cake, chocolate inside, and, and white frosting on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> um. Do you have a favorite musician or a genre of music? Ah, it's it's all over the place. I mean, it's um, I, one of my favorite songs. And since I I recently bought the place that I was showing you earlier yeah. is Ben Florida in in my house. And but it really, it's I mean, it, it's one of the things I didn't mention that I'm involved with is that um, we often have little get-togethers at our our place and it all inevitably um, devolves into dancing on the upper patio with the music going and I always ask people to put on music that they they like to um, they or or bring music that they like to hear and we'll put it on and it's just it is just so it's from the 1950s already to the most current stuff by um, yeah, uh, what's, oh, who, what's that? <laughs> I can't think of her name right now. The, the, um, the famous female pop uh, artist, uh, uh, the blonde hair. It's, it really is all over the place. I, yeah, no, no, that, that's great. And also, like, just looking at those pictures earlier, like, um, the view seems amazing. So that, uh, what you just described, like, that seems like such... Uh, amazing experience. Um, I mean, and the, the, what I was just showing you—that's where we typically will will have the little get-togethers mm -hmm. tomorrow night, where we're going to have one with my former postdoc. Oh little, wow! And um, it's 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 a, it's a very enjoyable place to. Um, actually, the the picture behind me is a picture of the um, a view from the um, of, from the top of. Oh wow! Like, that was taken taken like from your house. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow! I thought it was like a stock photo you could find online. Wow, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, do, oh wow. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite book or movie? Uh, Pulp Fiction would probably be my one of my favorite. Books. <laughs> just so many cool things in that, and it's just the, and of course the dancing in that. A favorite book? Um, I guess it it would have to be the the trilogy. Uh, the Lord of the Ring trilogy, oh. although I have to say the Foundation series by Asimov, okay. Isaac Asimov, I, 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 um, yeah, I really enjoyed both of those, both of those very much. And yeah, Asimov was like a pioneer in like all of this, like science fiction, robots. Exactly. I mean, the iRobot book, I just, I mean, I, I just find really fascinating, especially how because I think what what you when you look at the the very politicized world right now, yeah, um, the the lack of logic in many cases on both sides is really quite disturbing. Yeah. And what Asimov, one of the concepts that he brought forth was um, that a robot could never be a politician. Um, that was part of the society rules, and um, they. But basically, the uh, the, the, the ro uh, one particular robot was able to um, trick his way into becoming a politician 
so which would enable um, politics to proceed in a more logical way. I, it was, I mean, I just long for something like that where we, as a society, we did things as a um, for the the overall better betterment of the society as opposed to the betterment of, of just a few individuals. So, yeah. and you would imagine that if you were able to do these things in a more logical sort of way without self-interested individuals um, making, making, these, making these decisions, it would be a, an overall better place. I guess I have one last bonus question before we leave, and it's if you had unlimited time, money, and resources, what's one burning question about the world that you'd want to answer? Interesting. I think um, <clears throat> I, I've had this discussion with one of my former postdocs. He's at, at, at Lawrence Berkeley Labs now. His name is Trent Northern. And I think the and, and this is on some level he's he spent sort of part of his career trying to come up with solutions to this and I and I think the the answer well I, I'll put the answer in sort initially in terms of the question what do you think is the most important thing that 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 you could solve that would ultimately solve many other problems. So you talk about major problems in the world are water, hunger, um, just the things that are that are in in parts of the world that just so an underlying way to address this is to um, if you can come up with a viable source of energy that is that is green, and so I think. The, the world is moving in this direction right now, basically with wind power, with solar energy, hydrogen um, fuel cells. I mean, if, if you if, if you if you answer the question of um, basically free energy, I mean, the water problem goes away because now you have plenty of energy to um, desalinate water. Um, if you the food problem largely goes away as well because you again you have more than enough energy resources to basically do everything that you need to to cultivate land so i so i i, I think while I, this is not something that i would pursue because i don't think i have the the right um uh, um intellectual tools to pursue them if in an ideal world, if I did, I think that would probably be the most important problem to solve. Thank you so much for listening to The Helix Show. If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or follow our show on Spotify. And please drop a comment on YouTube or shoot me an email at chris at helixscience.org to let me know any questions, comments, or future episode ideas. Any feedback is greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm.